Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone. I am so happy to have Mark Nepo back. Mark is a poet and philosopher who's taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 40 years. A number one New York Times bestselling author, he's published 21 books and recorded 14 audio projects. As a cancer survivor, Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationships. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages, and it's just so good to have you back, Mark. Welcome. Oh, thank you. It's always great to, I feel like we continue this long, eternal conversation. It's great. Let's make it as eternal as we can. <laughs> <laughs> So let's start out talking about your new book, Drinking from the River of Life, The Life of Self-Expression. Um, just loved this book. And I'm wondering if you'd share a little bit about where the drinking from the river of light idea came from. Oh, sure. So, so the, the, the title actually uh, came from last, last summer I was in London and um, speaking and teaching. And I went to the Tate Gallery to see the Blake Room, where they had originals of William Blake, which is, you know, he worked very small, and so it's a dark room so that the etchings and drawings and paintings don't fade over time. And um, oh God, I was just there for for a couple of hours, and and as much as I know about Blake, I didn't realize that toward the end of his life, um, he had a vision. To, he wanted to do a set of illustrated engravings to illustrate Dante's Divine Comedy. And he had like 106 or 7 sketches, and he only got to engrave 7 plates while he was still alive. And so they had several of those up, and I'm walking around, and there was a sketch of Dante drinking from the River of Light. And I was captivated by it, and I stood before it. And after a while, I, I went, wow, you know, I... I don't know if Blake realized it, but this feels like a self-portrait of him. And the more I stayed with it, it kind of crept back to me. And I went, oh, this could be a self-portrait of me. And anyone who's a teacher or a writer, uh, you know, in any way, or really any artistic uh, creative force. And and so that's how that's when I knew it was the title of the book. And, and you know, as you know, the, the book is really about that, that, that river of light is really that that ineffable numinous life force that we are all called to drink from and i feel like this the book is you know explores it's not about there are many wonderful books about craft and technique and language this is about the deeper creative process the deeper expressive process which you know more than than what we produce it's about what it does to us and how it sustains and enlivens us. 
I think I've seen you define writing in numerous ways over the years. And in this book, you said, writing is an ancient art that deepens our relationship to all that matters. I love that. And I'd love for you to expand on that. Well, I think that what I share are examples, not instructions. And, um, I, you know, I feel like the metaphor that, that, that gave me a way into talking about all this is, is breathing. And, and then how that will speak more to the question you just asked. So that, you know, we have to inhale and exhale. We don't have, you know, we can't for this hour, well, we're just going to inhale. <laughs> That's not going to work. And the way the heart breathes, the way it inhales and exhales is it, the heart inhales by perceiving and feeling, and it exhales by expressing. And so when we do that, we are constantly connected, inner and outer, and it brings us closer to what matters, and it brings us more alive, And so, which I think is what the heart really cares about. And so how, what the trail of that as we is, are, are the, the artifacts of that personal form of expression is what we traditionally call art, whether it's a dance, you know, plays, paintings, poems, novels, it doesn't matter. And, and more than what we create is how we are created for this wholehearted engagement. So, you know, I think that, that we, even under, even with good intention, um, the manufacturing imprint on our consciousness is so insidious that we turn everything into a product. Everything. And I think my, you know, my, my cancer journey many years ago and almost died and still here really changed all that for me because, you know, as a young man, I was really in a, in a really devoted way. You know, I was hoping that maybe if I worked hard enough, I might write one or two great poems, you know, to add to the literature. And then in my early thirties, you know, I was, you know, knocked over turned inside out and upside down by a rare form of lymphoma. Well, forget writing great poems. I needed to discover true poems that would help me live. And now in my 60s, I want to be the poem. Regardless, we each need a very personal form of expression that re starts to remove what it is between us and life. And just by living just the way windows get filmed over and we need to clean them. Well, experience films us over. It films over the window and lens of the heart, the mind, our eyes, our ears. And a personal form of expression cleans that window. I love the simplicity of the first thing you said there that in-breath is the process of feeling and perceiving into life, and exhaling is the expression. And I think of how many shallow breathers there are in the world. Well, yes, and you know, and, and we, we, when we look at, you know, of course, all meditation practices, we, we, don't, we don't do those practices to become great breathers. We do them to become clear vessels. Yeah. And likewise, for all that we're told, I don't think that we practice expression to become great writers, but to become clear vessels. I love what you say about 
constantly being shaped by life into finer instruments of care and expression. So we'd have to be open, vulnerable, and willing to let that happen, though. So how do we cultivate that kind of receptivity of being shaped by life in that way, by all that matters? Well, I think I think that it happens whether we're, we accept it or not. You know, the Romans had a great saying that said, uh, the fates lead those who are willing, those who are not, they drag. <laughs> and so we're going one way or the other. And, and I think that, you know, we, we intensify our pain and suffering because what is not expressed is depressed. So the first thing is that I know myself that no one can stay open and be a clear vessel all the time because we're human. So immediately the call is to how do we develop a practice of return? Because I will fall down and I'll need to get up. I will be clear and then I'll be confused. I'll be open and then I'll be closed. So, and, and so for me, I think it's returning to simple covenants, if you will, of when life pushes me away, I've got to lean back in. Mm-hmm. The, the, the vow to hold nothing back, to be completely present. When I feel half-hearted, to be wholehearted. And so what does that mean? Since the miracle is everywhere, it is giving my full attention to whatever is before me. You know, the, the Hindus have a, a wonderful phrase known as Upa Guru, which means the teacher that is next to you at this moment. And there's always a teacher next to us right. at this moment. And most, most teachers, it's beyond human form. And so when we can open and continually lean back in and be present and not try to conjure material, but to discover our relationship with the universe, then the then aliveness returns. One, another thing you're talking about in Drinking from the River of Light is how being human allows us to fit things together or to break things apart. And that's what actually brings us alive. So talk, talk a little bit about that process of fitting things together and breaking things apart. Well, there's a, inwardly, there's a, there's a paradox, which is, you know, we are innately... Um, builders and joiners and merging things and you know in some way um our our true spiritual longing is to rejoin with everything to become one with everything so we're we have this innate sense to join and you know why there's you know a wonderful thing that that's uh biologically that if you were to take two living heart cells and this has been done and put them in a petri dish yeah. Then you go out to lunch and you come back and they will, they will in train, they will find a third common beat. That's how our, the joining part is so imprinted in us. But we also, we need to continually break forms so we can keep growing. Mm-hmm. So a good uh, metaphor for this is, you know, um, is, you know, many of us have had the chance to, to care for a potted plant. And if we care for it, the reward is it grows and you need to repot it. If you don't, 
the roots will become bound and it will suffocate or it will grow and break the pot. So either way you need, you know, this is the notion that, you know, when a cocoon, uh, when a, a butterfly emerges from a cocoon, it doesn't mean the cocoon was false. It means the cocoon did its job and served its purpose. And we are blessed to emerge more than once within a lifetime. And so we are forming, always joining and forming. And, and, and we think each form is permanent. But it is, each form, at least in my life, has been a, uh, for that passage, it is the cocoon to my next emergence, to my next transformation. Um, to, yeah, to, and, and the way that we express, now this is an amazing thing which I use uh, in the book that I discovered um, about um, silkworms and when they become uh, moths. This is remarkable. I mean, everything in nature is just remarkable, this teacher. So when a silkworm, when a caterpillar makes its cocoon, it uses its mandible this little tiny jaw to weave all the threads, spin it. And, but when it transforms into a chrysalis and is ready to emerge as a moth, as a silk moth, well, it no longer, it's lost the mandible. It no longer has the thing that created that self. So how does it get out? Well, in its transformation, it has generated an enzyme called serapeptase, and it regurgitates it within the chrysalis, and it's acidic enough that it bores a hole in the cocoon and it emerges. So this is a, this is a, an amazing lesson because the, just like Einstein said that the thinking that creates a problem isn't the one that's going to solve it. Well, by very nature. What helps us build one self will not be what will help us live the next form. And that serapeptase is equivalent to our life of expression. When we bring out what is in, it opens, it makes a threshold between us and the rest of life that we can emerge from. And it doesn't matter. You, you could be, let's, you know, break it out. It's not the formal arts only. It could be gardening. It could be stamp collecting. It could be taking engines apart and putting, it's whatever we give everything to. So th this leads me to, um, you know, talk about my father where I, I learned about this from him without realizing he was, uh, he was a master woodworker. He's now gone. He lived to be 93. And, um, and you know, now that he's gone, I, I discovered these lessons that I don't think he knew he taught, and I certainly didn't know I learned. And so I remember he loved me. He was also in the Navy, and he loved sailboats, and he built a 30-foot catch out of wood that I spent a lot of my youth on. But he also made these two-scale model sailing ships. He would get blueprints for 1800s, you know, clipper ships and things, and then to scale, he would build these models of the boats. So he would spend hours with tweezers making small rigging and sanding tiny rails and bowsprits. And, and I remember sitting, I was maybe nine or 10, sitting on the bottom, the top step of the basement, and he didn't know I was watching. And I saw him doing that. And, 
I was so captivated. And what I've come to understand all these years later is that he was so immersed in building that little ship. And the reward for that immersion, the byproduct was excellence. But the reward for that immersion was that he was in the moment of everyone who ever built a ship. The reward for immersion is our experience of oneness, not excellence. And that's the thing, whether it's car engines, whether it's weeding, whatever, whether it's, you know, doing meals for the homeless, whatever it is that we give our entire full wholehearted uh, care and energy to that we immerse ourselves in will heal us and give us the experience of oneness. And chances are the way a flame will give off heat, chances are it'll be pretty good work. But if I only aim for excellence, I may not be immersed and I certainly won't experience oneness. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like your father was your first meditation teacher. <laughs> yeah that's a great that's great yeah he wouldn't he wouldn't have been comfortable in this kind of conversation one of my teachers thomas hubel i don't know if you know thomas but uh no. german mystic does amazing work and he just did a summit on collective trauma and he had mm. Ken wilbur and peter levine and all these amazing people on one of the things that ken said was talking about how 70% or more than 70% of the people on this planet can't see beyond ethnocentricity. They can't comprehend a worldview, which is much of what's at the heart of climate change and war and all the things that are going on. So how do you face the speed and the complexity of change and the dumbing down through the internet with a species that is more than 70% unconscious of its relationship, its interrelatedness to the world. My answer to that is we have to do our own, own inner work, and that's the teaching. But I'm wondering your thoughts about that in terms of connecting, perceiving, seeing, and cultivating deeper relationships with ourself and therefore with the world. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a wonderful, important question. And it raises a few things I'd love to, to speak to, um, which, which dovetail with things I learned from the book I did on community more together than alone. And, and um, so the, the first thing is that I, I do feel that there, that there is a sense of our doing inner work and that inner work is inextricably linked to service inextricably linked you know um, ramana maharshi the great hindu sage said you know to try to save the world without first liberating yourself is like carpeting the earth rather than wearing sandals and so we can do harm if we don't do our own inner work first and 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 also the the, the image that you know a, a a single body my body or your body is considered healthy as long as there's one more healthy cell than toxic we'd like a lot more but as long as we got one we're leaning in the right direction so if, if we understand humanity as a global body every soul is a cell in that body and by doing our authentic work we do our part in keeping the global body healthy at least for today 
And then from there to look at the other, you know, I think one of the things is that I learned from doing all that research on community for many years was the fact that you know, there's long swells in the ocean of history, periods where we've pushed each other away and periods where we've come together. And in the, you know, the medieval uh, dark ages of Europe, it's interesting, we learned that as the dark ages, but around the rest of the world, it was actually a pretty enlightened time. It was in Europe that it was dark. Um, 90% of the European population was illiterate. 10% kept literacy alive for two to 300 years. And, and if we are in a strident, dark time, despite the modernity and the technology, um, then it's incumbent on us in the work that we're doing, that you're doing in the summit, in the kind of everyday work, in, the, in being who we are thoroughly, um, that we keep the literacy of the heart alive. Mm. And that, that is crucial. So I think that so much does come down uh, to the archetypal choice that we face every day between love and fear. And, you know, when, when fear, um, let me tell you, share this brief story, which is actually a chapter in the other book, but it's all weaving together here. Um, and it's, it's just a parable about the two tribes. Oh, and, I was thinking of that as you were talking. I love oh, that. So, yeah, let me, yeah. yeah, so let me share that because it speaks to what, and, and how we move from, from being unconscious to conscious or half-hearted to whole-hearted has a lot to do with if we uh, make a covenant to bring our inwardness out through a personal life of expression, whatever that might be. So in this parable, you know, I, I think back and, and you think all the way back to the beginning when the, uh, cave times and imagine the first two people to come upon each other. And before this, they thought they were alone. So one person comes up to the mouth of a cave and sees another in there. They look at each other like, oh my God, who's, what's, I thought I was alone. What are you doing here? And the, imagine that the one in the cave points to his other and says, you're different, go away. And that was the beginning of the go away tribe. And depending on how much fear governs us, then throughout history we have periods where those who in the go away tribe say, well, you know, I can't trust you'll be where I put you or where I'll see you or that you've really gone away, so I'm going to put you where I can watch you. I'll put you in a ghetto, in a refugee camp, in a re detention center, you know, in a reservation, in a ghetto. And in, when fear has metastasized so completely, we've had these horrible periods of genocide throughout history where human beings so divorced from themselves have said, I can't trust that you'll be anywhere. I need to make you go away. But if we go back to the mouth of that cave and the other at the mouth of the cave sees his other and imagine that he goes, you're different, come teach me. And that was the beginning of the come teach me tribe. You're, thank God you're not me. Oh my God, someone other than me. Please, let's share what we know. We are more together than alone. And that has led to the highest points of the human enterprise and of civilization. And the catch, of course, Michael, is that we belong to both tribes. And I can tell you to you with all my heart, I am a lifelong member of the Come Teach Me tribe, but we could get off this call 
and something could happen tonight or tomorrow that will alarm me and be traumatic and I'll switch tribes. And then I need you to remind me, no, 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 no. Remember? No, we are more together than alone because fear, fear is something to be moved through, not obeyed. And when we get stuck in our fear, you know, when you ask fear, what should I do? It will always say, be more afraid. We're, we're not to turn to deify fear. We need to negotiate fear, just like we would a storm or a circumstance. And so all of this plays into your initial good question. And that question at the summit is, how do we, you know, if we want to reduce violence in the world, the first thing we need to do is face what is ours to face and feel what is ours to feel. And I think in our times, you know, I, I struggle with this paradox, but I feel deeply we are they. There is no they. Uh, you know, then I turn on the news and I say to myself, there's no way I'm that. How can I? We are they. So in that tension, you know, or as Parker Palmer calls the tragic gap, that's where we, we need to do our work and not become the other tribe and not give up on the other tribe. And how do we do that? Boy, I, you know, I'm trying to figure it out every day. I think we all are. It, you know, you reminded me of Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful poem about crossing where he's the pirate and he's the oh, yes. murderer and the girl that was raped and he's all of those. And to be able to really feel that, be able to take that in is incredibly powerful. And you were talking about leaning in a little while ago before this. And I was thinking as you're talking about the fear yeah, can we lean into the fear just a little bit? Can we just, because at the base of that, the myth of separation is this fear of other. Well, when we, when we listen to, you know, fear, and I know this deeply from my cancer journey, before that, I hadn't experienced anything really life-threatening or difficult, and I, I was terrified of everything. And fear gets its power from not looking. And the word respect means to look again respect. Inspect means look in. Respect means look again. So when we have the courage or get the help to have the courage to look at what we fear, we are respecting ourselves. When we don't, then we build a worldview out of fear. And then education becomes only confirming what I already know. Right. versus learning something new. As soon as we start confirming what we already know, then you're different. Go away. You had in your book one of the poems there, which wasn't yours for a change, but I, it's a, uh, and that's William Stafford's poem about the thread that runs through everything, connects everything. And I'm just wondering your thoughts about you know, in that place of leaning into the fear of, of feeling it and allowing it really, I think it's kind of digesting it in a way that in that there's that opportunity to 
feel that thread, you know, because everyone feels those fears that are particularly now that are happening. There's kind of a coming together. So can you talk about the thread that connects us to everything and how we can cultivate our ability to feel that more deeply? Sure. So, you know, I, I do feel that there is an underlying unity that connects everything. And, you know, an image uh, that, you know, we were all, we're all pieces from the one unnameable heart. And, and we're, we're all here to, to find each other and reconnect and reform that one unnameable heart. And, and I think that, you know, we, we, how, and I'll offer an exercise, which is in the book somewhere, an, an invitation to practice this. Because I think when we, it, what usually brings throughout history, human beings back to the source, the center, whatever you want to call it, that universal unity, that thread under everything, where you can't, everything that's false has been loved or worn away. And, and that's all that's left is great love and great suffering always reduce us to what matters. Mm-hmm. And this is like spiritual physics. I'm not advocating suffering. Nobody signs up for it. We don't like it, you know, but great love and great suffering always return us to what matters, always return us to the thread that runs through everything. And so I think that when we are suffering in the world of circumstance, we can do work to renew our authority of being, which gets its authority from all being. So, so what, you know, one way that I offer to do that, an invitation to anyone who's listening is, you know, I believe that we have foundational stories in our lives that that help us remember what matters, that help us remember who we are. And we often don't pay attention to them. You know, I know for me, there's a, I had a, you know, my grandmother, my father's mother, who was more of a mother to me than my own mother. And, you know, I, there was a, a story that when I was, oh, you know, eight, I think or so, she lived in Brooklyn, old Russian immigrant. And uh, I loved being with her. And I was rummaging through my grandfather, uh, through my grandfather's things, and he, I never knew him because he died just when I was about a year old. And um, of course, turns out I'm most like him in the family. And uh, <laughs> and so I was rummaging through his basement, and I found his Talmud that he brought from Russia. And my grandmother came down, and you know, and we had this this amazing moment where she just spoke to me soul to soul, and and said, "You are why we came to this country. You are why we live." You know, she grabbed my little hands and said, these are the oldest things you own. And, and over the years, I've returned to that story and I've discovered it's a foundational story in my personal mythology. Mm-hmm. That when I am drawn back to it and I tell it, um, I remember what matters. I remember who I am. Mm-hmm. And so my invitation to anyone who's listening is, can you begin to tell a story that is foundational in your life. Mine was when I was younger, but it could have happened last week. And it may not be a positive. It may be a traumatic story that has taught you something. It may be a story that comes out of suffering or loss, 
But can you begin to tell a story that is foundational in your life and what reliable truth does it return you to? And once you've done that, I would put it away for a week. And then I would invite you to tell that to a friend or loved one, tell that story to someone else. And ask them if they have a foundational story. Because when we get connected with that foundation, then when we experience things like fear, they're more right-sized. Beautiful. I just want to say, Mark Nepo, that I plug your book again, Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression, that throughout every chapter, you have exercises like this. And I love that you do that. You know, first it's oh, like, look you. here, look deep, and then share. And I think that's such an important part of this, this uh, beautiful new book that you've, you've put together. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm committed to that. I think, you know, the life, my life as a teacher and as a student, lifelong student, and life as a, a, a writer and a seeker are all merging there. I mean, I feel I, feel I love the questions uh, so much. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, one of the things that I think about a lot, especially coming out of the corporate world and being with a lot of people who are disembodied, the importance, you went through such a, a huge body issue that was, I would say, the heart of your awakening. The art of embodied perception. You talk about, I want to get into perception because that's an important theme in the book, but embodied perception because... People can't, if they're not in their body, they can't feel these things that we're talking about. They can't experience it only as a mental construct, which is not going to get them in line with that thread. Yeah. So talk yeah. about that issue and your experience of it. Well, I think, you know, before my cancer journey, while I've always been a heart-centered person, I was way in my head, you know. And, and through no wisdom on my part, yes, through that journey of almost dying, I was thrust into my body and woke up on the other side, living from my heart and not my head. And my head is, my mind has always served my heart ever since. Um, the mind's an amazing tool. But, but yeah, so there's a difference between mental perception and embodied perception. And this is where giving our attention and time and patience and leaning in allows us to experience more than just in the head. Because when I experience, and this I mentioned in the book about indigenous perception. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, and here's an example from, from that cancer journey. I, I was, I had a, a uh, I had bone marrow samplings and a spinal tap in the same day. And then I was home, and I had to lay, that was 30 years ago, so I don't know what it's like now. But then uh, I had to lay still flat for six to eight hours or I would get a migraine. And of course, being in my 30s, it was hard for me to lay still. And of course, every time I moved, boop, there was a headache. So I was like, okay, are you going to be still? Do you get it? You know, I got plenty more headaches for you. <laughs> and so then when I was finally still, you know, exhausted, and I looked out in my front yard and there was an apple tree, which I'd seen, but not seen forever. And I really not only saw the apple tree, because that would be the mental perception, 
but I was so broken open that the tree started to speak to me, not in words, but it was so present. And what it conveyed to me, which I translated into words, was when you get through this, and it clearly said when, not if, which was a big, big one, um, no more making things up. You will just praise the miracle of what is. Mm. That was a clear, clear conveyance. So, so what do I mean by embodied perception? That when we can be still enough and open enough, we relate to everything with its own aliveness. And that's what Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, in his I Thou talked about, that when we can relate to things like they are alive because they are, then God appears as the unrehearsed dialogue between two living things. When I mentally look at a tree, I'm already naming it a tree, what kind of tree, and now I'm, I'm looking at it, and I see it as not, well, it's alive because it's a plant, but then I get a stone, and well, maybe a stone's not so alive. Everything in the universe has its own agency and aliveness. And when I see the mind as a container or as a generator, I cut myself off from the resilience and life force that comes from relating to the aliveness of everything else that's not me. And so this is, you know, one of my earlier books, Finding Inner Courage, you know, one of the things I had a friend who was very, uh, spent a lot of time in Mexico and was very conversant in Spanish. And I was curious, I said, well, what, you know, if you ask someone like in Spanish, you know, uh, what does courage mean? And one of the ways that that's translated in Spanish doesn't, isn't translated, what does courage mean? It's translated as, what does courage have to say? The courage already exists. It has its own agency. It's like a mountain you climb. The mountain's there. The view is there. I don't make it up. So, you know, this old, this old thing in the West that, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Of course it makes a sound. What an egocentric, self-centered view of the world. That's nonsense. Of course it makes a sound. It made a sound before I was born and it'll make a sound after I'm gone. And, you know, so how do we... And another way that, that this openness of expression we're talking about now and letting the depth of a feeling perception, which leads into intuition, uh, affect us is, you know, my grandmother, who I mentioned, you know, she's been gone. I, you know, she died in 1988. And I remember, you know, I still, I feel her very much. And I remember, oh, maybe 10 years after she was gone and missing her terribly and, um, and then I had a dream that I, that was like one of those vivid dreams, like like it was a visitation. And of course, you know, we're taught, and myself and people around me saying, well, you know, you had that dream because you missed her. Well, as soon as I do that, I preclude the aliveness that, no, she, in whatever form she's in, received that I missed her and she showed up. We cut ourselves when we make, you know, so we, 
we use the mind as a way to make ourselves the center of everything and cut ourselves off from the resources of the universe in doing so. That's so true. I was walking along the beach here. Uh, the maples are all turning, popping out of all the, the evergreens that are in the cedars that are around here. And I had this experience yesterday on my walk with my dog of just being with that tree and seeing how the, the leaves on the inside of the maple were green and the, and the patterns and how they were getting yellow outward or, or from the outside inward. And I had the experience of the tree actually listening to me, listening to it. Ah, uh, yeah. And I think of that experience with people too. Can we have an experience of listening to people, listening to us as we're listening or as we're speaking? What if we had that as a practice? Yeah, and I think this is where we're connecting some of the things we've talked about because our fear of the other decreases the more that we do the inner work and, and are confident and faithful to our own authority of being, which gets its authority again from all being. So then I'm, you know, I don't need to see me and you. I don't need to push you away. There and so you know it's like as if if I like you know say that you know we're friends and I respect you and you say something that uh, upsets my sense of myself or is hurtful and now because I respect you I you know I don't want oh well I kind of go uh, I go back and back to try to get uh, have it reset or minimize the hurt or you know when okay that's that's fine. Whatever's there between us is one thing. But if it's out of proportion, then that's a signal to me. I don't need not to go back to you. I need to go down to reestablish my own authority of being rather than go to you to reaffirm my worth. This is the work of the life of expression. Yeah, it's the essence of relational intimacy. If we can take that down here. Kyle C. said something great. It's your triggers are not in the way of your evolution. They are the way. And I thought that was brilliant because that's exactly what you're talking about. It was like, oh, so many things. You talk in the book about the veils of illusion and lifting the veils of illusion and how they keep us in these repetitive circles and cycles of what's not working and how we're not connected. Maybe you can talk about some of those veils that we need to lift to be able to really. Well, be able to yeah. And so I think, I think, you know, so let me talk about that or at least begin to talk about it this way and, and go back to that image of cleaning the window. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, again, my grandmother, this was a, a quick story that was so helpful in her last year of her life. She lived to be 94 and I would visit her in a, home and it was really a hospital it was before assisted living but it was a wing that was really assisted living and visited her on a beautiful day and i came in to see her and she was glum and she was like 93 and uh i said grandma what's the matter she said oh it's a, and with her thick russian accent jewish accent, yeah it's such a gray day and i thought oh maybe she's not lucid it was a beautiful day i you know and then i looked around she had one window which hadn't been cleaned in a year it was a gray day to her. 
So I said, Grandma, the window's dirty. We'll get it clean, but come on, I'll take you out in the courtyard. It's a beautiful day. And she leaned, she sat on the bed and she chuckled as only someone almost 100 years old could who had crossed an ocean to be here. And she said, got a dirty eye, see a dirty world. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Got a dirty eye, see a dirty world. And I can't tell you, I call that immigrant wisdom, pointedly today, immigrant wisdom. And I can't tell you how many times that has saved me. There will be great days. But before we put all of our effort into meeting a day and casting the world as gray, let's make sure our windows are just not dirty from experience. And so lifting the veils is any personal practice that will clean our windows. And it's not because dirty is bad or clean is good, you know. Puritans, the Puritan notion is, oh, we've always got to be clean, have clean windows. And, you know, the more realism, existential, you know, the, Emil Zola and realism, you know, you know, you, they, they, he deified, you got to stay dirty and, you know, get covered by as much experience. No, like, you know, we're constantly being in experience and the windows get covered. I wouldn't even say dirty. And then our honesty, authenticity, love, suffering, expression, clean the windows. The only difference is internally, every time we authentically clean our windows, we gain an inch of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so we are, you know, our, another kind of continual veil is that as human beings, one of our gifts is that we learn. So we have insights and we learn, but we have to keep those current. And when we don't, what we learn hardens into assumptions and conclusions, which form an internal plaque of the heart and mind into the arteries to the heart and mind. So at once we need to learn, but we also need to drop what we learn so we can be fresh again. And so one of the ways we're continually asked to lift the veil is to always check our assumptions and conclusions and to stay current by being present, being wholehearted, leaning in, immersing ourselves, listening. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. It reminds me of another thing that you often, not only in this book, but in other books, Mark, uh, that you talk about is um, metaphor, uh, how metaphors actually connect us. Maybe you could give us some examples of uh, how metaphors connect us and how the search for metaphor opens us. Well, the, the search for metaphor is really the search for everything, the assumption, and this is in the West what metaphysical poetry is all about, and in the East it's really, in, in all the Eastern traditions, at the heart of that, that everything is, in life is connected. And our job through love and suffering and expression, is to discover how. And so metaphor is the way to bring into view the connections that are invisible, ineffable, or hard to see. You know? Um, and that's opposed to the other kind of uh, vow of expression, which is to bear witness to what is. Mm -hmm. So when things are clearly seeable, 
metaphor then gets in the way. So a great example of this, which I use in the book, is the great Pablo Neruda, who was in Spain in the 30s uh, during the, the Spanish Civil War, and he saw a lot of horrible things. And he has a line in a poem that says, the blood of the children on the sidewalk is like the blood of children on a sidewalk. And I think what's so powerful there is he's saying, this is not the place for metaphor. If we use metaphor here, it's distancing us. When we see what's before us, we need to say what's before us. But metaphor is there when we say, you know, uh, so here's a metaphor from the Hindu myth of Indra's net. Indra was, is a god of, Hindu god of connection, has a pal, believed to have a palace hovering over the earth and has woven a net that encircles all of existence. Except wherever there's a knot in a normal net, a rope net, twine net, there is a jewel. And if you look in the fate, in the clearness of one jewel, you can see all of the other jewels and the entire net reflected in every clear jewel. And this becomes a metaphor for how all the souls on earth are connected. Every soul has its place in keeping the net of existence connected. And when we are clear and authentic and holy here, just like X and Y chromosomes encode all of life biologically, we can see in one clear heart every soul and all the whole net of connection of the universe. That's a wonderful metaphor. To, to, so that's an example of a metaphor that brings in the, the view of connection. And I think we can't, we don't go to create metaphors. By being present, we discover the connections that are already around us in life. Yeah, you talk about saying the unsayable. I think that metaphor... When, when there isn't, you know, the blood in the street is the blood in the street kind of so right in your face. But when you can't say, but you can feel the unsayable metaphor helps to both for myself or ourself and another to approach that, to get closer to it. Yes. Is that what? Yes. And, uh, and for anyone listening, just a simple practice about metaphor is to take a feeling any feeling that's really with you right now and say, it's like, it's like, like, what is it like? Paint a picture of the feeling with words. It's like, you know, I feel like, like, you know, like coral under the sea and the water is just coming around and all these things are swimming around me. What does that feel like? What is the feel, whatever you're feeling, what is it like? And you will start to discover a metaphor and then, if you do, listen to the metaphor and pay attention to it so that it can become your teacher. Oh, we're about out of time. I, I, one more thing, just to, maybe you can say fairly quickly, the distinction between making a living and living a making. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, to ask. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So this also came from my father when... I came home and, and you got to realize, you know, my father was, like I said, was a woodworker, master woodworker, didn't really understand poetry or anything like that. Uh, came out of the great depression. So he was very based in reality surface, you know, really. And I come home and I was the first in my family to go to college. 
And so I come home from college as a sophomore, declaring with excitement that I'm a poet, even though I hadn't written anything. I just knew it. And, you know, of course, we had the archetypal argument about, well, how are you going to make a living? And I don't know where it came from me, but I wound up saying, uttering to him, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to make a living. I'm going to live a making. And I've spent many years trying to understand what came out of my mouth in that moment. But I think this raises more deeply the difference between surviving and thriving. And every person alive has to do both. So we have to survive, but if it's not to thrive, what's the point? So we, we have to find a way to survive the surface world of circumstance. And at the same time, it's all so that we can find a home within us and around us that lets our soul breathe. And so this is why I like to say that um, our, our career is our soul's awakening. Where that takes place is our occupation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so good. I, it also, to me, spoke to the difference between process and product, like the building of the ship. Tell us about what's happening. You've got lots of new small group things happening there in Kalamazoo. Yeah, thanks so much. And people can find out about all the things I'm doing on my website, marknepo.com, or a sister website, threeintentions.com, all spelled out. Over the last seven or eight years, I offer a couple of of, uh, year-long journeys for no more than 30 people take place here in Michigan where I live. And a a same group comes back four weekends across a year, and we journey together. And there's also a, uh, next July, a deep dive, a week-long journey where we really stay in, in this deep space together for six full days. Well, if you go to my website, there's a little video and there's a link that will bring you to a separate page that has all the details. And I love that. I mean, I love being able to journey with a small group over time, which is why I've begun to do this. In addition to Michael, I just confirmed that next April 17 through 19, I'll be back at unity in Vancouver. So we'll definitely be doing that, but folks can, can find uh, where I'll be and, and what I'm doing pretty easily through my website. MarkNepo.com. Mark, just for all of our listeners and, and just from my heart, I'm so grateful that you've been in my life all these years and the gift that you are, just uh, such prolific wisdom and, and so much heart. Just thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Michael. It's a joy. And thank you for, I'd be, for me being a part of your good work. Thank you. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.